Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Kate Mazur is Professor of History and Board of Visitors Professor at Northwestern University, where she specializes in the history of race, politics, and law in the United States. Today, we will be discussing her recent book, Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement, From the Revolution to Reconstruction, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History and a winner of the Littleton Griswold Prize from the American Historical Association and the John Philip Reed Book Award from the American Society for Legal History and the John Now Book Prize in American Civil War Era History. Mazur recently coordinated a team that produced Black organizing in pre-Civil War Illinois, creating community, demanding justice, part of the Colored Conventions Project. This online exhibit highlights early Black communities and Black activism in Illinois and includes biographical profiles of 25 individual people. Professor Mazur, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So for my first question, I was wondering, what was your initial motivation for writing Until Justice Be Done? The book evolved over time, and so it's hard to pinpoint an exact motivation. A bunch of different things kind of came together, a bunch of different questions that I had. One had to do with a question that I had as I was finishing my first book on Washington, D.C. during the Civil War and Reconstruction, and I noticed or sort of thought in a new way about how Congress in 1862 had passed legislation to abolish slavery in D.C., but then quickly after that passed a separate measure to repeal the Black laws of D.C. These laws applied to free African Americans, and they established slavery and the rules around slavery. But if Congress hadn't repealed those Black laws, then those laws would have applied to all the African Americans who had become free as a result of emancipation, and you would have had a segregated by law system. But instead of allowing that to happen, the Congress repealed the Black laws as well. And I was wondering, as I was finishing my first book, like, well, that's weird. They seem to have done it without debate. Why would the Republicans have been pretty much unified behind a regime of racial equality before the law when the prevailing view among many historians is that the Republicans were a coalition that opposed the extension of slavery into the West and they generally opposed slavery, but they were pretty racist and wouldn't have stood up for something like that. And so I was wondering, you know, as I was finishing the book, like, well, who's written about that? And I realized that there wasn't really a book that explained how a majority, you know, the prevailing view of white Republicans in 1862 could have been in favor of doing something like repealing the Black laws of D.C. So that's not, though, what got me into the book, because I actually only realized later that I was writing a book that eventually kind of answered that question that I had had. I was also interested in, there were a bunch of different questions about kind of law and due process of law and like, where the idea that authorities could stop a person of African descent on the street under the presumption that they were enslaved, like an escaped slave or somebody who was not was somewhere where they shouldn't be like, where did the idea that you could even do that come from? And to what extent did various people, you know, actually accept that idea? So I, it was a complicated journey to getting to what became this book. 
And what was the legal and cultural context in which the first civil rights movement was happening? And relatedly, this is a quote from your book. You had some great questions scattered throughout the book, some of which I took for this interview. What did advocating for African-American belonging and racial equality look like in a decentralized nation where local and state law had the greatest influence on everyone's daily lives? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that that points to is that a lot of the questions about belonging and equality were going to be fought out at the local level and at the state level. So I kind of start with the premise of the version of federalism that existed in the early United States, where most people didn't think that the federal government had much authority in matters associated with individual rights, including slavery itself, right? So slavery was implemented at a state level and legalized at the state level. States passed more or less whatever laws they wanted related to making distinctions among people and what kinds of lives they could lead. So ranging from distinctions based on race to laws that particularly related to women or sex, sex differences, laws associated with age of majority as well. So all of those kind of questions around what kinds of rights and privileges and things like that people had were mostly adjudicated at the state level in terms of law itself, and then worked out at the more local level, depending on who was, you know, in charge of a given office or what the prevailing kind of view of a community was. So I realized that if I really wanted to think about these questions about how Northerners basically grappled with the end of slavery and lived in a kind of post-slavery society, that one of the central you know, kind of premises of the book was going to need to be that the stuff that I was looking at was going on at the local and state level. You mentioned that your book looks at Northerners in a post-slavery society. So what geographical locations are prominent in your book and why? Well, when I first started working on the book, I knew that the Midwest was going to play an important role in the book. And, you know, it's widely known among people who care about these things that there's something called the Black Laws of the Midwest. And people called them the Black Laws back then. And historians continue to call them Black Laws, but really they were anti-Black Laws. So these were laws that were most characteristic of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. So these are three lower Midwest states that all of them were part of the Northwest Ordinance originally. And all three of those states border on the Ohio River and on slave states to the south. And these states from actually before statehood, from the territorial period, had laws, statutes that made that were designed to subordinate free Black people. So slavery was mostly outlawed. It was definitely outlawed in Ohio from the time of statehood. And yet these states, although they were either outlawing or mostly marginalizing slavery, passed codes of law that were designed to, as I said, subordinate African-Americans, for example, by requiring Black people to register with local officials if they wanted to live in a community, by barring African-Americans from testifying in court cases involving white people, by excluding Black children from public education or from publicly funded public schools, and then also by state constitution, these places disenfranchised African-American men. So in all of these different ways, you had 
by state power, state legislation, systems that were established to make African-Americans marginal, to discourage Black migration into the states, and just generally to send the message that they weren't really welcome in the states. And I thought these were really interesting laws and that I was going to be interested in the struggle to get those laws repealed. And one thing to me about the laws and what's interesting about them is that they establish a two-tier system where white people can expect one set of rights and black people can expect another much lesser set of rights. And the idea that this kind of system was one possibility for a society that abolishes slavery, right? That you can um, end slavery, but also set up a kind of racial apartheid kind of regime. And you could also not do that. And what ends up happening, interestingly enough, for the end of my story is that it's the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the 14th Amendment that actually set up the principle that that two-tiered system is supposed to be not okay in the United States, that we are not going to accept that as an outcome of the abolition of slavery, but rather we're going to attempt to have a system where we not only don't have slavery, but we also don't have a kind of racial apartheid system. And so I think it was interesting to think about how do you get from states that have anti-Black laws and the state level struggles against those laws and the kinds of ideas that get kind of put forward in those struggles, and then moving that from the state level to the federal level by the time you get to Reconstruction. I'll just, you know, say briefly that the in addition to those lower Midwestern states, the other places that I really look at are in the Northeast, especially Boston, Massachusetts, and to some extent New York, and to some extent Philadelphia for different reasons, but especially in the kind of part of the book, it turns out that places like Massachusetts and New York that didn't have the kind of racial regime that the Midwestern states had, they did have this other major civil rights issue that was actually quite prominent in politics. And that was a kind of fight to protect the rights of free Black sailors from those states when they were working on ships that put into Southern ports. And so in that case, where we see the kind of first civil rights movement or these civil rights struggles has less to do with repealing state laws because those states didn't necessarily, they didn't have too many laws that were like the laws of the Midwest, but rather about these interstate issues that raise questions about what rights citizens of one state have in another state that raise questions that could speak to the United States Constitution in ways that issues associated with state level laws that were only involving one state, intrastate issues, had less to do with the U.S. Constitution. So who are some of the people who are involved in this first civil rights movement? And what sorts of venues did the legal debates and issues that you've mentioned and track in your book occur in? So there are a lot of different people involved in this. There are First of all, African-American people, activists, people who are kind of doing work in public around these issues. And I'm able to write about them in large measure, not exclusively, but in large measure by using newspapers, including Black newspapers like Freedom's Journal, which started in New York. There's a paper called the Palladium of Liberty in Ohio for a little while. So there's several Black newspapers that are really helpful for kind of shedding light on the things African-Americans were doing and saying, but also white edited abolitionists or anti-slavery newspapers were really helpful for this. So 
There's a paper called The Philanthropist published in Cincinnati that gives a great sense of some of what Ohio African-Americans were doing in terms of organizing for the repeal of the Black laws, developing over the course of the 1830s a kind of statewide movement, political movement that would call for repeal of the Black laws, but also do a lot of other things in terms of trying to galvanize African-Americans in general, thinking about Black education, thinking about issues like temperance, thinking about where to live and what to do economically. So I found it really interesting and really important to find what African-Americans were doing and saying in terms of this movement. And then there were white people involved in this movement too. Some were people you might expect because they're known to have been abolitionists, but others were people who were either not associated with the abolitionist movement or explicitly disavowed it, but for a variety of reasons may have stood up for the rights of African-Americans or stood up for the idea of a kind of vision of racial equality before the law and things like that. And the venues were interesting. I mean, sometimes, you know, this is a legal history blog, and I sometimes was not sure if this was legal history or not. I'm kind of always wondering about that. But I think one thing I really like about legal history is that it's so capacious at its best. Many times, if you think about a sort of narrow definition of legal history being associated with courts and lawyers and things like that, many times the issues that I was writing about were not litigated. And it would be very hard to litigate them because, for example, at the state level, challenging the Black laws at the state level, sometimes people would say, well, these laws violate the state constitution because state constitutions would regularly have declarations of rights, of universal rights, and then along come these statutes that are very ununiversal in nature. And yet courts at the time, state courts were very likely to uphold state legislatures, be very deferential to state legislatures. And so there wasn't necessarily a lot of point to taking that fight into the state courts, whereas people did take the fight to state legislatures and directly call on the legislatures to repeal the laws. And the same with the issue of Black sailors, There's a lot of people making constitutional arguments all over the place, but not necessarily in courts, but in state legislatures saying that we need to stand up for the rights of Black sailors, for example, because what South Carolina is doing by incarcerating Black sailors from the North is unconstitutional under the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Constitution and things like that. So there are a lot of legal and constitutional arguments that are being made in a lot of different venues, institutionally, like legislatures, in culture, in newspapers. And then only kind of occasionally, but in some important situations, do we see them in courts themselves. And one of the more dramatic stories in my book is when the activists from Massachusetts and politicians from Massachusetts decide that what they're finally going to do is send a person to Charleston and a person to New Orleans to bring a case in federal court challenging the state laws that require the incarceration of Black sailors in Southern ports. And they're going to actually have a federal court challenge with the idea of taking it all the way to the Supreme Court and having a Supreme Court ruling on the constitutionality of those laws. So, you know, there would be a great example of really trying to use courts to bring some form of justice. And what ends up happening is those two men, the guy who goes to New Orleans, the guy who goes to Charleston, they get run out of the cities. The white residents are like, you know, you need to leave. You are definitely not going to be able to bring a case in court here. We can't guarantee your safety if you don't get out of town. And so one of the reasons in that case why there's no court records to turn to is because 
by force, those people were run out of town and prohibited from bringing a case. So there's just a lot of interesting kind of institutional dynamics here about where these arguments are being made and where they're not. Talking about arguments, what sorts of arguments did anti-slavery and racial equality activists put forward? And what sorts of philosophical traditions were those philosophies grounded in? So the people who were pushing for repeal of the Black laws and pushing for protections for free Black sailors and also kind of the idea that the nation as a whole should protect the rights of African-Americans. They drew on several different traditions. So like the starting point is that this was an incredibly racist society. I mean, in many respects, white Americans had received in so many ways, so many racist ideas. And I mean that really literally, you know, there was, first of all, the two major sort of racially powerful institutions that dated back to before the founding of the United States, African slavery and Native American dispossession, or like the doctrine of discovery, right? The idea that Europeans have a greater right to this land than Native people, often conceived of in racial terms. And of course, African slavery conceived of as the enslavability of people of African descent in a way that people of European origin were supposedly not. So on the one hand, you have these intrinsically kind of racist institutions in the United States that, you know, so many people sort of understood as fine, right, the world we live in. And then you have some countervailing tendencies that offered up different ideas. And among them, in terms of philosophical traditions, were the Bible, certain aspects of the Bible. And one passage in particular that people frequently use that said, God has made of one blood all nations of men, which was basically the idea that as people considered nations at the time, sort of akin to races, but that all people were of the same blood. Um, And so the people I write about often turn to that phrase and a few others, the injunction to do unto others as you would have done to you, to kind of say that this kind of racial subordination violated Christian teachings, even though like on the other side, people regularly use the Bible to justify slavery as well. So it kind of depends on what you picked. Also, the Declaration of Independence was really important as a kind of American founding document. So to the extent that the Declaration said that all men are created equal, endowed with rights by their creator, and so on, like, even though that Declaration did not have the binding force that the Constitution was supposed to have, many people did consider it a really important statement of the ideals of the American Revolution. And so people also turned to that and said, you know, this was what the founders of this country wanted, and our interpretation of it is it implies to all people equally with no distinction based of race. And finally, to kind of science or nature coming out of the Enlightenment period and scientific explorations, again, like this could be turned in different directions. But for the people who opposed these racist policies, they would say that, you know, science has showed us that when push comes to shove, the exterior differences that we might see in people's skin color or their hair texture, what have you, really don't have any deeper meaning and that all human beings are fundamentally alike and share a kind of common inheritance and and should be entitled to the same kinds of rights. So the Bible, nature, and the Declaration of Independence were the things most regularly that people reference to kind of challenge 
these prevailing views that the way that the United States had often operated in a kind of political, economic, social way by accepting slavery and by accepting Native American removal and dispossession was wrong. But I, I think, you know, one of the things I tried to convey particularly early in the book is that that was actually a tough road to travel in the early, relatively early United States. And you know, these are ideas that might seem very natural to us, very right, very obviously right to us. But in that time, they were ideas that were significantly doing battle with this received wisdom about kind of European superiority. So why was the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Constitution, Article 4, Section 2, critically important to the American debate about the rights of free African Americans? Yeah, so many times the issues that I'm writing about, as I mentioned, people aren't directly connecting to the U.S. Constitution because the Constitution kind of gave so much power over individual rights-related matters to the states and to local governments. But one area where people did invoke the Constitution was in the question of the rights of free Black sailors. And here they talked about the Privileges and Immunities Clause, the original one. It's in Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution. And so there are a bunch of things in Article 4 of the Constitution that have to do with trying to adjudicate or ameliorate potential conflicts between states. So the people setting up the constitution realize that they were they're going to be this kind of federalist system they're going to be separate states there will probably be conflicts among the states and so let's have a framework for uh trying to kind of establish a framework for resolving those conflicts and so the privileges and immunities clause that says that the citizens of the state are entitled to the privileges and immunities of the citizens of the several states it's funny people have looked at this um and you know that it refers very clearly to state citizenship, like the citizens of a state are entitled to something. The question of to what extent it also establishes the idea that there is such a thing as a uniform national citizenship has been like argued over quite a lot. But I think it's safe to say that at the time in the early, in the first several decades of the 19th century, there was a lot of ambiguity about how to interpret this privileges and immunities clause. and. It often, in court cases that I'm aware of or that, that historians are aware of, the cases that went to court often had to do with the rights of white men who wanted to go from state to state and do some economic thing. So the well-known case of Corfield v. Coriel has to do with a guy who was, if I remember, he was from Delaware and wanted to fish for oysters in New Jersey. New Jersey said, you know, uh, well, we have a law that says that our oyster beds are only available to citizens of New Jersey. And so the case involved the question of whether a citizen of a different state could have access to this natural resource that the state of New Jersey wanted to reserve for its citizens only. And so that's the kind of question that often came up under the Privileges and Immunities Clause early on is like, what economic rights do citizens of one state have when they go into another state? So the question of African-Americans traveling was a different type of question but could be discussed under that framework. And so, you know, my sense of what is going on here is that people in places like Massachusetts and New York, where there were big 
ports where there were a lot of Black sailors, members of the Black communities there who knew that their brothers, fathers, cousins, friends were subjected to arrest and incarceration and potential sale into slavery in these Southern ports, they thought that was really bad and really dangerous and really unfair. And when thinking about, well, like, what can we do to stop this practice? What can people in Massachusetts do about what people in South Carolina are doing to our people, right? From a legal, constitutional perspective, I mean, there's very little that they could do, right? So like, just starting with that point, right? Like, there isn't a federal law that's explicitly says that that's wrong, or that there's some kind of baseline of like, what it means to be free for everyone or what have you. So they see in the Privileges and Immunities Clause in Article 4, Section 2, a possible way to make an argument that what South Carolina and these other states are doing is unconstitutional. And that is, you know, they grab onto that and and make the argument regularly, kind of from the 1820s onward, that the people in some jurisdictions should not have the right to abridge the personal liberty of citizens of other states. And they begin, this gets into another question that I guess we can talk about. I mean, the language of citizenship becomes very important here um, because the Constitution says, well, the citizens of a state have the rights of citizens of the several states. And so, you know, it becomes very important to say, well, the Black sailors who are incarcerated in South Carolina, they are citizens of Massachusetts or they are citizens of New York. And so they have rights under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And so I think there's a process of making a constitutional argument and adopting constitutional language to do that. And then kind of seeing where that takes you. And it's a way of addressing yourself to the Constitution is a way of kind of legitimating your claims and trying to bring them into institutions, right? To not just be like yelling out there, this is wrong, stop doing it but to like be able to kind of stake a claim in an institution like Congress or a federal court. Yeah, and um, your book talks a lot about how there was sort of ambiguity about what the term citizen meant at all in that time period. So yeah, could you talk a little bit more about the questions surrounding citizenship and why it was such a crucial question in this first civil rights movement? Yeah, I mean, I was very interested in trying to kind of parse out where and why and under what conditions people seem to think that explicitly claiming citizenship was important. So, for example, I don't know, it's always it's just something I've always been interested in is like, well, when do people kind of stake a claim based on being a citizen and a citizen of what versus when do people stake a claim based on being a person or being, you know, just like a human or a woman or a man or or what have you. And so I actually found that a lot of times in intrastate issues, like questions around repealing the Black laws of a place like Ohio or Illinois, African-Americans and their white allies sometimes talked in terms of being a state citizen, but sometimes they also just talked about being a human, like that, you know, it was not fair, for example, in the testimony laws of those states where they said that Black people couldn't testify in courts, court cases involving whites, you know, the claims that African-Americans made about that often were in terms of like, that's just wrong, you shouldn't make a racial distinction. And it wasn't necessarily like, because I am a citizen of this state, 
And it's interesting that at the same time, as there was more and more immigration to the United States from Europe, that actually white non-citizens enjoyed rights to testify in court, to own property in many places. Um, A lot of places got rid of these thing called alien land laws that prohibited non-citizens in some situations from owning land. In some places, immigrants who had not yet become citizens were able to vote. They were men. And so this was a world in which you did not have to be a citizen or recognized as a citizen in order to have certain kinds of rights. And so in many instances, African-Americans are claiming rights and and white people are claiming rights on behalf of African-Americans, not as citizens, but just as people and just saying that there shouldn't be these racial distinctions. So by contrast, in the instances where people are really deliberately invoking the privileges and immunities clause, for example, they're claiming citizenship rights or rights as citizens because that's the language in which that part of the constitution is written. And going back before the 1830s, as early as the Missouri crisis, as I write about, there's this kind of discussion of the privileges and immunities clause as it applies to African-Americans moving from state to state. And it's after that that Massachusetts and New York both seem to affirm as states that African-American residents of those states are considered citizens of those states. And so my sense is that citizenship as a kind of official matter becomes increasingly important to African-Americans' status and to these claims under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. But that often, again, that citizenship status is talked about as a state status rather than what we might assume, which is that it would be discussed as a national status. But I just want to add one additional kind of feature to the discussion, which is the more sort of cultural claims to citizenship and belonging that African-Americans were making. So in addition to talking in kind of, I don't know, sort of official or like legalistic terms about state citizenship and what it could get you and state citizenship and the U.S. Constitution and things like that, There was also a kind of swath of African-American activists, as people like Christopher Bonner had written about and Martha Jones has written about, who claimed national citizenship based on the idea of having been born in the United States, sometimes invoking having fought in previous wars for this country, and the idea of kind of just claiming we are citizens of this country. And that is also an important strand that was in the mix in this period. So it was less associated with the specific claim, a a specific like constitutional claim, the way that claims under the Privileges and Immunities Clause were, but it was also important as assertions of kind of national belonging and the idea that, you know, that we belong here and also that we cannot be deported, right, in the face of the colonization movement and kind of discussions about removing African American, free African Americans from this country. So in your answers so far, you've mentioned Black sailors quite a bit. So could you speak a little bit more about the role Black sailors and sea captains play in the first civil rights movement? Yeah, I mean, this was something that I didn't necessarily know that I was going to end up writing as much about as I did, because I hadn't realized until I started doing research how important the discussions of the kind of legal and constitutional dimensions of Black sailors' rights were going to turn out to be. And I started to find that when I was in the Massachusetts State Archives and like 
kind of found these documents that were labeled something like rights of citizens of Massachusetts. And sort of there wasn't anything on the exterior of the document or the way it was cataloged that necessarily said that these documents were going to have to do with African-Americans. And yet when I asked the archivist to pull those documents and then like it turned out that these were documents about Black sailors in Southern ports and that this was a really important galvanizing issue for many people in Massachusetts and New York. And then once I found that in that archive, I kind of started to pull the thread through to a lot of different places. So Black sailors, as historian Jeff Bolster has written, others like working on ships was a really important source of employment for free African-American men living on the Eastern seaboard and also people living on the Ohio River and the Mississippi River. So there's a lot of interesting stuff about Black sailors. This was a job that was available to African-American men. And then interestingly, it put them in motion crossing jurisdictional lines and traveling into places where that jurisdiction might recognize their rights more or less than where they came from or where they live. And as a lot of people who study history know, the slaveholding South, the idea of mobile African-American sailors who were not only sailing up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States, but maybe sailing to Europe or to Haiti or other places in the Caribbean, and then putting in at southern ports with ideas about freedom, ideas about revolution, kind of sense of their own liberty, that this for many white Southerners was very threatening. And that so on the one hand, working on ships in a variety of capacities, a very good job for African-American men facing discriminatory employment conditions. And on the other hand, it raises a specter that is very scary to the slaveholding population and in Southern ports. And so it sets up this tension and challenge, right, between the people who are the sailors themselves and the captains of the ships on which they're working and the animosity and worry of the enslaving class. And then that combined with the fact that they're crossing jurisdictions. And so from a kind of legal or constitutional perspective, it's raising questions about like, well, you know, are you carrying your rights with you? You have the rights of the place where you're from or the place where you're um, arriving in. And these interstate issues that the framers of the Constitution obviously anticipated some of them, but couldn't have necessarily foretold what kinds of issues would come up under them. Yeah. So in the end, Black sailors become both themselves personally and themselves as a sort of symbol or like a vehicle around which to mobilize. They become really, really important. I mean, I haven't yet mentioned like that Black sailors drive some of the activism because they come back from some of these Southern jails and report back sometimes in, you know, sworn affidavits about what they saw in those ports. And so they are living testimony. They give testimony to their experiences and to having encountered other free Black sailors from the North in Southern jails. And they really galvanize people to think about what a travesty that is, what a dramatic kind of violation of the rights of free people it is. And so it's because they are willing to speak out and their families are willing to speak out that consciousness is raised about this issue. And what is petitioning and what role did it play in the movement? So we see a lot of petitioning in this book. And so petitioning is when you 
somebody writes a petition, uh, uh, some kind of request to a governing body, and then people may get a bunch of signatures on that petition to show that a lot of people agree with them and submit it often to a legislature. I got, you know, really interested in petitioning as a form of giving voice to people's opinions. And here I was influenced by some really important work by Maggie Blackhawk, a legal scholar who had written quite a lot about the kind of procedures involved with petitioning. So one of the things that's interesting about petitioning, of course, it goes to a tradition of kind of making requests and expressing yourself to a kind of potent body that predates the formation of Republican forms of government and kind of predates the ideas of equality and individual rights and goes to the idea that any body is actually entitled to petition the sovereign or the government. And so petitioning was not a form of expression, of political expression that was, it was different from the vote because it wasn't exclusionary. Petitioning was available to women, to African-American people, including in some cases to enslaved people. Ostensibly, the way people talked about it, it was like available to children. It was available to kind of like anyone, regardless of your stature in society. At least that's how it traditionally was understood. And by petitioning, you know, the theory of petitioning was that governing bodies had an obligation to respond to petitioners. And so over and over again in my book, I have people like petitioning state governments often, and then these petitions generate a report from the state government kind of addressing what the petitioners have asked for and saying, you know, we don't think this is a good idea, or we do think this is a good idea. The idea here is that those reports, even if the legislative body is saying, no, we don't want to grant the petitioner's wishes, they're putting themselves on the record, they're generating discussion in a climate of kind of intense print culture, like the antebellum United States was, those reports coming out of legislatures could be publicized by newspapers, picked up by other newspapers, editorialized about. And so one of the strategies of this movement, which again, this movement for civil rights, the most avid members of this movement were African Americans who were disenfranchised, not permitted to vote in the Midwestern states, and in any case, in most places were a real minority of the population. And so, first of all, they had to get some white people on board in order to make change, in order to make things happen in the legislative area. And then also, like even with the white allies involved, they were still, in most cases, a minority position. They were unlikely to get their representatives elected to office, certainly in enough numbers to change things immediately. And so being this kind of minority movement with a view that was pretty unpopular, this movement used petitioning as a way to amplify their voices, to get the word out about what they were doing, to kind of gin up the conversation, right? To kind of raise the stakes and raise the visibility of the conversation in hopes of developing more and more allies. So petitioning was a really interesting and um, I think pretty effective way that they did that given their relatively small numbers. I think petitioning kind of connects to my next question, but how does your book help render visible the work behind more studied landmark historical moments and political figures, maybe like a landmark peaks of legislation or some really famous politician who gave a speech uh, in Congress? You discuss on page 133, all the attention on Townsend, Morse, and Chase rendered invisible the many years of petitioning 
lobbying, reporting, and political agitation that preceded the repeal. And now I'm forgetting what was repealed, but maybe you remember. That was um, the Ohio Black Laws. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that was one of the goals of the book. And one of the things I was most interested in was trying to, I don't know, there are a lot of different things you could call it, like, but kind of a social history of ideas or a kind of that the idea that major landmark decisions or pieces of legislation don't just kind of emerge out of nowhere. And not only that, they don't just emerge from the people in the room in a state legislature or in the U.S. Congress talking. They come from a variety of different other contextual situations, ranging from the life story and previous experiences of those legislators to the social movements that kind of influence the political situation and that there are so many sources for what ends up happening on the kind of large stage of a legislature or something like that. And I was really interested in trying to draw some of those connections and to do the research that would allow that to happen. And what are some of the ways, I think this is going back to my first question about what first inspired you to write the book. But what are some of the ways you see the influence of activists' antebellum activities in the legislation and constitutional amendments Republicans passed after the Civil War? And yet, why was the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment at the same time, at one point you call it like a radical departure, talking about the Civil Rights Acts from what came before? So that question gets at the change and continuity simultaneously that I think I see in these reconstruction measures. So I see that the framers of the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act, the men in Congress who were making these decisions in, you know, primarily like the winter of 1866 and the fall of 1865, they were drawing on a vocabulary that was derived from and kind of elaborated in the course of the antebellum debates about the rights of free African Americans that most of the book talks about. And the most obvious thread there is the issue of the privileges and immunities clause and the question of the extent to which it applies to free African Americans. The sailor issue kind of crystallized it, but what rights do free African Americans have traveling from state to state And does the Constitution protect them? And many times in the course of the debates about what becomes the Civil Rights Act, the issue is invoked. And sometimes it's invoked by talking about Samuel Hoare getting kicked out of Charleston when he tried to bring a court case. Sometimes it's evoked in just the kind of overall disputes about the rights of Black sailors that had been going on for some decades before that. And so we can very directly see that the people in Congress at the time, one of the things they were trying to resolve, now that slavery was being abolished by the 13th Amendment, right, by constitutional amendment, was the question of like, are we going to continue to have these fights about the basic rights of free Black people when they travel from state to state? And they did not want to, right? They wanted to establish a federal baseline so that they wouldn't. And so that's number one. And the original Privileges and Immunities Clause in the Constitution is like literally echoed in the Privileges or Immunities Clause of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. So they really are, and they're very self-conscious about this, like 
trying to solve a problem in using that language that they knew existed because of these pre-war struggles. On other issues that didn't kind of get elevated to the level of the United States Constitution before the Civil War, like Black laws of the states, right? So the Black laws that the states passed that were kind of like fought out on a kind of intrastate level before the war, people were also very aware of those laws. They talked explicitly about the Black laws of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio in particular. And those laws applied to persons also. So like citizenship was less an issue in those laws. And the debates were had more around, could you have laws that just said Black people, doesn't matter if they're citizens or not, Black people are circumscribed in these ways or have to do these things that white people don't have to do. And they wanted to get rid of that as well. And many of the Republicans who were in office during the Civil War and Reconstruction, they had a record of saying in this antebellum period that they didn't like these kinds of racist policies. And so they're now like they have a kind of vision that these policies are wrong that they could not have put into practice at the federal level until the kind of crisis of the Civil War. So that gets to point two. So there's a continuity of ideas. There's a continuity of kind of legal and constitutional thinking, I think. On the other hand, if there hadn't been a Civil War, they wouldn't have been in a position to be in the Republican Party in this huge majority in Congress and able to pass these kinds of measures. And the thing that they did that was a dramatic break from the past was to establish a federal level baseline for individual rights. So there had never been, at the very least, there had never been any kind of pretense in the Constitution that the U.S. government, the Congress, the federal courts could actually enforce a certain baseline of individual rights until this time. And there just wasn't the kind of apparatus in the Constitution. So people would say that for example, with the issue of Black sailors and the Privileges and Immunities Clause, people would say Congress doesn't have the power to enforce the rights of Black sailors, even if it had had the will to do so. Now, some Republicans disagreed with that. We can kind of get into the weeds about like the different positions that people had on whether the Constitution already gave Congress the power to enforce the Privileges and Immunities Act Clause or not. But the bottom line is Congress had not enforced those. And so to now have an explicit mandate in the form of a statute, the Civil Rights Act, or the 14th Amendment, actually part of the Constitution, saying, as Section 5 of the 14th Amendment does, Congress has the power to enforce this. It's supposed to take the guesswork out of the situation if there's any, you know, that the notion that you cannot now say that Congress can't say to South Carolina, you can't arrest Black sailors. That's like off the table now because Congress can enforce this idea of, of equal citizenship and equal protection of the laws. So this is really monumental in terms of changing the shape of federalism in the United States and kind of establishing a new federal baseline for rights in a way that is supposed to kind of create a certain uniformity throughout all of the states that it's not about all issues, but it's about a certain set of issues that are associated primarily with trying to end racist policies that people at the time understood were an outgrowth of slavery itself, but not the same as slavery. How do the civil rights movements or movement of the mid-20th century and the continuing movements for racial justice today connect to the first civil rights movement? Or what connections do you see? (laughs) I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to answer that question. I think since this conversation has kind of highlighted issues about federalism, I think 
one connection is that it was so important for later civil rights struggles that this period that we're talking about established that federal baseline. So even though the history of enforcement of the 14th and 15th Amendments in the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century is really pathetic and like, you know, those amendments were not enforced. The Civil Rights Act in many ways wasn't enforced. And yet what the later civil rights movements were able to do was appeal to the idea that the federal government must step in when states deny people rights that they are ostensibly guaranteed under the Constitution. And so the continuity there to me is one of the continuities is that it has actually very often been state and local governments that have been the most repressive toward racial minorities in this country. And it has very often been the federal government that is the kind of recourse or the backstop that in the better scenarios, it's the federal government that comes in and curtails whatever noxious, toxic thing it is that the state governments are doing to or local governments are doing to minorities, whether it's um, repressive laws or failure to enforce laws that are supposed to protect people. And so there's this kind of back and forth. And one of the things that seems really current now is just the ways that the Supreme Court in the last decade or two has really reduced a lot of the work that federal enforcement, especially around voting rights, has been able to do. And so once again, you see like greater disparities in access to basic kind of rights because of the shrinking and the backing away of the federal government under this court. So there's that that I think is important. And um, that's from the kind of large scale legal constitutional perspective. But I also think that, you know, one of the things I hope that my book conveys is the importance of political mobilization at the grassroots level and like that change can happen and does happen and that, you know, people are able, have in the past been able to form coalitions and do things that might seem kind of unlikely, like get the Black Laws of Ohio repealed, shape the conversation around the Constitution and the rights of African Americans in the case of the Privileges and Immunities Clause, even if they weren't able to get a favorable court decision or any decision at all. And so I think that by looking at a lot of different levels of politics from local to state level to federal level, I'm hoping to show that that what people actually try to do matters. And also that oftentimes these struggles are a long game and that a social movement uh, might not get what they want, you know, right away in a particular goal, but you never know how you may be seeding future mobilizations or successes in what you're doing in the moment. So I think that, you know, a lot of the people um, who I write about Some lived to see the changes that they were hoping to see, at least in terms of legal change and policy change. Others did not. But just thinking about the time horizons of individual people's lives, I think, is interesting. And we just we can't necessarily know what the positive impact of things we're doing now will be in the future. I want to thank you for being on the show today. Sure. It was a pleasure talking with you.